Hey, good morning. How are you? My name is Seth. I'm the lead minister here at Echo Church. So glad to see you here this morning. Um, I want to start off today by telling you about my childhood home. So I grew up in a town called Jamestown, Ohio, which is about an hour and 15 minutes north of here between here and Columbus. And when you would approach my house, you would see two things. The first thing you would see is a white kind of worn down screen door that had these four red painted decorative triangles where the top would point into each other and it made a box on the bottom. And then behind that door was sort of this flimsy wood door that had a diamond shaped window that was about eye level with where I stand right now. And when you went through those doors, the first thing that you would see up on the wall was this old I don't know, we described it as a dentist chair, and it was orange, and it was pleather, and it was super ugly, but it had a heater on it, and then it would tilt back and forth with just the push of a button, and it vibrated too, which was pretty cool. Um, our couch seemed to change every couple of months, and it was never a new couch. And then up on the other wall by a big window, we had a brown corduroy love seat that had a matching recliner that was to the left of the door when you walked in. And then during my teenage years, I don't remember what happened to the ceiling exactly, but it was a drop ceiling that somebody had put in a few years before we'd moved into the house. And we ended up tearing all of that out, and underneath of it was a long beam that ran the span of the living room. And it was beautiful, and it had been preserved uh, throughout the years that it had been covered up. After the living room, you would walk into the dining room, and we had a buffet. It was a blue, light blue buffet, but that's where we kept our towels and our washcloths and these kind of things. And um, there was a drawer above that that was like the mis miscellaneous hardware drawer. Everybody has one of these, right, where there were like used batteries and nails and just weird stuff like that, scissors, whatever there was. And then next to that, um, and underneath a large hole that my father had cut out of the wall to hang a wall unit air, condition, uh, air conditioner was a postman's desk. And it must have had a hundred tiny little drawers that each had something different inside of it from stuff like sewing needles and I don't know, man, just ten kinds of stuff uh, that was inside of this postman's desk. And of course the crown jewel inside of this postman's desk were medicine bottles filled with quarters that my mom had collected throughout the years. Do you remember back when they were doing like the state quarters and that kind of stuff? Those are the things that my mom was collecting. And my sister and I always like to joke when we're hanging out at family events is that when, when mom passes away, we're not going to be able just to throw anything out in bulk because we're going to have to search for our inheritance inside of these tiny medicine bottles all throughout the house. Um, so you would go through the dining room and then was the kitchen. So the kitchen had carpet. Yes, carpet in the kitchen. And it had this print on it that looked like a Thanksgiving cornucopia and it was just so ugly, man. But we loved it, right? And then the cabinets were this dingy yellow and there was a dishwasher that was on casters uh, that I don't ever remember working working. I don't ever remember using it through the 15 years that we lived in this house, but it was there. And then above the sink, we had this radio 
that um, we would tune in to the country station coming out of Washington Courthouse, which was a neighboring town uh, to Jamestown. And we would listen, during dinner, we would listen to this, uh, this program called Sell and Swap. Now, Sell and Swap was this, this, this show where people could call in and say, hey, I've got a tractor for sale and it's not running and it needs two new tires. And if you want it, my phone number is, you know, whatever my phone number is and I want $100 for it. All right, Bill, thanks for the advice. Like, and they'd go on to the next one. And it was the craziest show and it was super weird, but it was Craigslist before Craigslist was a thing. Uh, but my sister and I, man, we loved it. So here's the kicker, right? Every once in a while, we would have animals in the house. And I'm not talking about dogs and cats here, although they were there too. I'm talking about farm animals. So we lived in town, but my grandparents owned a sheep farm on the outside of Jamestown. And uh, Chris is loving this because he knows tons of people from Jamestown and he, he knows what I'm saying right now is true. Every once in a while, we would have a baby lamb that wouldn't take milk from its mother or whatever, so we would take that lamb and we would bring it to our house put a gate up across the kitchen, the kitchen doorway, and the baby lamb would stay in the kitchen with, with a diaper on, and we would feed the lamb milk that we had bought from this store called Quality Farm and Fleet that was in Xenia, Ohio. So there were times we had rabbits, and there were goats in our carport, and not like pygmy goats, I'm talking like a full-grown alpine goat, if you're familiar with goats at all. Go ahead, look it up, it's fine with me. This thing came up to my shoulder when I was 13. It was enormous, man. And that thing was in our carport. So here's the deal. As crazy and eclectic as that combination of stuff might sound, I don't ever remember being embarrassed to have anybody over to our house. Furthermore, my mother encouraged it. And even through my teenage years, man, she loved having my friends over to our house. It didn't matter what time it was either, even mornings, afternoons, didn't matter. Sometimes my friends would spend the night and my mom would come downstairs and in the living room we would just be sprawled out all over the place and she'd be like, I know what to do two loaves of French toast, and that's what my mom would make. Maybe the most hospitable woman I have ever met in my life. I didn't grow up in church, so my mother was the example I followed when it came to learning how to host people. And I love to hang out, man. I think this is something that was instilled in me by my parents. We hung out a lot, and I always felt like there were people at our house, and my mom was at the center of that because she loved to host, and she loves to take care of people. So shifting gears a little bit, um, knowing that that's my experience, when I became a Christian at the age of 20, I found it hard to find good Christian community. Now this happened for a couple of reasons. The main problem I had was the fact that I had become a Christian in May of 2001, and I thought that it would be a good idea to go immediately to Bible college in that, that August. Um, this was tough because I had no experience operating within a Christian culture. And Bible college only compounded that for me because of all the accountability rules that were in place. So imagine being 21 
which is what I turned shortly after arriving at Bible college, and then having a curfew for the first time that, that you can remember, really. And I mean, I had a part-time job and a full class load and things that I wanted to do. I was off campus all the time, but I had to be back at 11, and I just struggled to adapt to this culture. The other problem I had was that I moved off campus halfway through my second year, um, which I was told I wasn't allowed to do either. Uh, but I did, again, more rules that I'm just not accustomed to having in my life. So this took me further away from being able to find good community uh, during my time at Bible college. And it wasn't just two, those two things. And look, I understand like the rules are by, at Bible college are put there for good reason and they're there to protect people. And I understand all of that. I was just used to doing what I wanted to do. <laughs> and I couldn't do that anymore. And it was a struggle to adjust to them. So the reason I'm telling you this story is because I'm hoping that some of you can relate to just how hard it is sometimes to find good Christian community. Now, I got lucky, right? I got lucky enough to have a mother that showed me what it was like to be around people, and that was really good for me, right? But from the time I became a Christian and walked on to Bible college, it took me seven years to find community that I thought I could really gel with. And there was a lot of struggle in that time period. These friends that I met at a church that Michelle and I uh, reconnected um, with Jesus at was, uh, was really important for me. And these friends, with whom I still regular, regularly hang out, they taught me some things about Jesus that I'd been missing. And me, always interested in the way things may or may not be connected, I found it interesting with how closely my mom followed these things. So today's message is Jesus and hospitality. Um, alternatively, Jesus and friendship or Jesus and how to act like a good friend around people. All of those things are applicable here today. Um, and here's a bit of a roadmap. One thing, Jesus invites. Number two, he's fully present. And three, Jesus doesn't discriminate. So we're going to get started in the book of John here today. And there's this story at the beginning of his gospel about John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist didn't write the book. He's just in the book, right? And people who are following John the Baptist, they really, really like him. I've always seen him as kind of this gritty, kind of smiling a lot, a little off, you know, and maybe just like this guy, this hippie type who's just like gallivanting through the desert, picking up stuff to eat, and then baptizing people in the nearest body of water he could find. And in my mind, he looks like the dude from The Big Lebowski, if you've ever seen that movie. Like, that's John the Baptist to me, right? Um, he's just this really cool... Uh, character in the Bible. And like I said, people really like to be around him. And he's got his own following and his own disciples. And like I said, he's baptizing people. When the Pharisees show up and they start asking him questions about who he is, they say, are you the Messiah? And he's like, no. And they say, are you Elijah, this person that we think is supposed to come before the Messiah? And he's like, no, it's not me. John the Baptist tells them, he's like, look, there's one coming after me who's greater than me. You're going to know when he shows up. And he's talking about Jesus. And John, who seemingly uh, has never met Jesus, on the next day, he sees Jesus walking. And he goes, look, there he is. 
he identifies him. So this is John 1, 35 through 40. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by, and he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi or teacher, uh, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. So two new people are following Jesus, and he turns around and he says, what do you want? Pretty legit, right? It's probably what I would ask if two strange people started following me out of the middle of nowhere, and they're just like, I don't know, Uh, John said, and you were uh, the Messiah, and they're not really saying this, but maybe they're thinking it, and they're like, John said, and, and then maybe caught off guard a little bit. They're like, where are you staying? Okay. Where am I staying? That's what you want to know. Fine. And he says this, come and I will show you. This is an easy passage to glaze over and I've done it a hundred times. But the disciples are asking Jesus this simple question. He responds in this seemingly banal kind of way. Come and I will show you. Here's what I really like about this. I'm not convinced that Jesus has any intention or care about where he's staying and wants to show them where he's staying. He doesn't want to show them his living quarters. He wants to show them how to live. And so when he says, come and you will see, he invites. And this is what, this is what Jesus does. He meets us where we are. He compels us to follow him. And then he opens up doors to houses that we didn't even know about. He invites us into a relationship with him. So I learned this lesson about Jesus from my friends Russ and Larry. Uh, Michelle and I had just moved back from Daytona Beach, and we'd spent eight months down there. Well, I spent eight months down there. She spent about five months down there. And it was a particularly difficult time for us, and we were really struggling financially. And I wasn't really sure about Jesus, and this is about ten years ago. And... um, the church that we were attending where I met these guys, Russ and Larry, where they were having a men's retreat. Now, at the time, a men's retreat was not really something that I would be like, yeah, I'm in, let's go to that. Uh, But I talked about it with Michelle, and she was like, this might be a good idea, you know, for you to go and hang out with these guys and see what it's all about, right? So I did, and we'd been going to this church maybe three or four months before we did that. And I show up, And Russ and Larry, man, maybe two of the least judgmental people I've ever known in my life, accepted me, right? And they didn't judge. And I don't remember all of the conversations that we had at the time, but I remember what I felt like at that men's retreat. And that was important to me at the time. The the authenticity that came through... Uh, came through in ways that I'd never experienced before. And I remember arriving home after that retreat and confessing to Michelle that I'd likely found my people and that I wanted to start attending church regularly again for the first time in a long time. And all of this happened simply because two guys had the presence of mind to offer 
an invitation. Point one, Jesus invites. Come and I will show you. Point two, Jesus is fully present. So for this story, we're going to turn our attention to John 11. So just a few pages forward if you find it there in your Bible. And this is the story of Jesus' friend Lazarus. So Jesus and his followers have hopped the river. They're running from this place called Bethany. And they just experienced some bad stuff there. They were trying to kill him and all this. And so they ran. And on their way, when they get across the river, they get this message that their friend Lazarus is sick. And Jesus is worried, but he says this, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Um, Martha and Mary, right? These are two people who are really important in the scope of Jesus' ministry. And this is their brother, Lazarus. So he has care uh, for this family. So they stay for a few days. They're like, all right, Jesus convinces his disciples, like, let's hang out here for a few days and see what happens. Um, And then he makes the decision. He's like, let's go back to Judea. And the disciples aren't having it. They look at Jesus and they're like, uh, just to refresh your memory, Lord. Two days ago we were there and they tried to kill us. That's why we're running. Uh, Maybe not the best idea for us to go back. But Jesus is like, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. And then he adds this, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And they're like, well, no, let's not do that. If he's sleeping and he's sick, he'll get better, right? This makes sense. This is the way things work. And, and Jesus, is like, Jesus is like, no. You're not hearing me right. What I'm telling you is Jesus is dead, or not Jesus, Lazarus is dead. And then they're like, well, then why would we go back at all? Like, what can we do now if he's dead? Um, but that's what they do. They go back because Jesus has something to show them, right? Thomas is like, well, let's go with him so that we can die with him. That explains the brevity of this situation, right? Like, it's just heavy. It's super heavy, and it's just um, this kind of thing where they assume when they're going back, they're all going to die, so they all do it together. So they go back, and they're there, and they find out that Lazarus has been dead for four days, and uh, Mary and Martha show up. They were up the road in Jerusalem, and they show up, and Martha comes out to talk to Jesus, and she's like, Lord, if you'd been here, Lazarus wouldn't be dead. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha gives this indication like she's been paying attention to some of his teachings. And she's like, yeah, I know, at the resurrection. Like, we'll all be there together. And and he's like, no, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She's like, yeah. I believe who you say you are. You're the Messiah. This makes sense to me. Then Mary comes out, and then, you know, she says the same thing to Jesus. She's like, uh, if you would have been here, our brother wouldn't be dead. And, and then some of the family comes out, and they're crying, and they're grieving, and, and Jesus starts to feel this emotion. He starts to get angry at this moment. He's overcome with emotion in this, in this instance. And he's like, where is he? Let's go, let's go. 
They're like, okay. And then when they got there, it says Jesus wept. There's some people standing around, and the text says, and the Jews said, see how he loved him. He's crying. He really does care about this family and this person, Lazarus. And of course, there's some people who are some naysayers, but we're not worried about them right now. And then Jesus has this crazy idea, and he's like, move the rock from the tomb. Just go ahead and move the rock. And they're like, what? Lazarus has been dead for four days. It's sure to smell in there. What are you talking about, move the rock? We're not going to move the rock. He goes, move the rock. Didn't I tell you you were going to see something great today? Move the rock. So that's what they do. They move the rock and Jesus prays, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And he looks in the tomb and he goes, Lazarus, let's go. And Lazarus walks out of the tomb. And they take the linen off of his body and everybody is excited. Can you imagine... (laughs) just for a second here, what it must have felt like to be Lazarus in that moment. And I'm not talking about like inhaling that breath after being dead for four days. I'm talking about taking that linen off and then looking out that tomb and seeing the Messiah in front of you. And he's just brought you back to life. You know he cares. You know how he feels about you. And then the family standing around too, they would have felt something similar to this, right? They're just standing around watching this and they're crying and they feel his anger and they're like, wow, he does love Lazarus. And then he brings him back to life. And they're like, the crying was one thing. This is entirely different. We can see how the Lord cares. So I read this story and I see Jesus doing something very simple, which is the act of showing up. That's how much he cares. And here's the thing, he didn't have to. The man is God. Could he not have prayed from where they were previously, reduced the risk to himself and the people around him, and still taking care of this situation? Absolutely he could have. But Jesus wasn't distracted by the things that were around him, or the naysayers, or the danger. The importance of showing up and taking care of of the people matters a lot to Jesus. He pays attention and he's so emotional over this situation that it moves him to tears. So I wish that I really had a good uh, real life example (laughs) to tie into this situation. Uh, But I'm guessing we don't have too many people in our congregation that can bring somebody back from the dead after four days. Uh, The point that I want to make here is that Jesus shows up. Um, What I do have is this friend named Derek and showing up as his calling card. There have been numerous times when I've had a problem with something at my house, like the plumbing, or I need something to be moved, or just help with stuff in general. And Derek has the gift of service, which is to say that he shows up. And we can't undersell that. Showing up is important. And I can't remember a single time in the last 10 years that Derek hasn't made himself available when I need him. He sacrifices. He shows up. And it's very simple to him. So Jesus invites, he shows up, and he pays attention. Um, And that's the next thing. 
Jesus ignores these distractions, right? Uh, that could take away from this experience. From the threat of being killed to the naysayers, the risk of someone seeing what happened and telling someone that someone deems important, Jesus blocks all of that out and he focuses on what's in front of him. We live in a, in a society that makes sure that we have plenty of distracting things to occupy our time. The main thing for me is right here in my pocket all the time. That's my phone. Um, and it's not necessarily the phone itself. It's not necessarily uh, that thing, but it's the thing on the things, right? And all this stuff that just occupies my time. I mean, they employ people to uh, figure out how we can spend more time on this thing in these tech companies. And I'm not anti-technology, and I'm not anti-tech and anti-science. And um, but I, I'm embarrassed up here to admit that like this thing distracts me from dinner time and from soccer games and from circles of friends and all these other things when that red light is on or that red box or whatever it is on your phone, like that thing pulls me away and it, and it doesn't allow me to be fully present the way that I want to be. Jesus shows empathy. He shows up and he pays attention. We don't have to fix it. We just have to be there. Jesus invites. He shows up and pays attention. The final thing is this. Jesus doesn't discriminate. And for the final story, we're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're in chapter 10. We'll be starting in verse 25. Um, so Jesus has been doing some teaching, and this man, who's called an expert in the law, decides to give Jesus a test. And he asks Jesus, he's like, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus is like, well, what do you think? And this teacher of the law, this expert of the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind. And then he's like, oh, oh, and uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, good, you've been paying attention. You're right, do these things and you'll live. But this guy's not done. He says this, he's like, and who is my neighbor? And it's a trap. Because at the time, a neighbor was defined as a fellow Israelite, somebody who was on the inside, a.k.a. somebody who was in the club, born into it, right? That's how neighbor was defined at this time, and Jesus changes that when he tells this next story. So it says this, and you might be familiar with this one, but I'm going to read it to you. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest in the club happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan, an enemy, not part of the club, that person you hate, the person you talk about, person you want to kill in some instances. As he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus turns to the expert in the law and he says, which of these three men 
do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he looks at him and he says, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus is like, you're right again. Go and do likewise. So the line that we have in our Bibles is love your neighbor as yourself. I don't want to go sky high Bible college on you here, but there are two different versions of Pharisees, and we hear a lot of stories about the Pharisees who are violent. Paul is one of those, right? What we don't hear is a lot of stories about the ones who are nonviolent. Jesus is one of those. And the way they would interpret this message, love your neighbor as yourself, they would say it this way, don't do to your neighbor what you yourself hate. That flips it a little bit for me. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't do to your neighbor what you hate. I just want you to think about that and explore the different connotations throughout the week. I don't need to go on some diatribe up here about how things are broken in our world today and in our society. You already know that. If you're paying attention to the news, you know that there's well-documented divisiveness in our current social discourse. You can turn on any news station, pick up any newspaper, go to the internet, whatever it is, and you can find out what's happening in our world. People are hurting. And a new wave of accountability is dawning, and all of this is good. The way we feel about things in the present day is warranted. Indignation, when well-placed, is an effective tool to combat hate and to create social change. We've seen it work in the past, and we will see it work again in the future. However, as Christians, we need to continually ask ourselves if Jesus is at the center of our indignation. Indignation is one thing, but righteous indignation where Jesus is the driving force behind all of our actions is something entirely different, and we have to think that way as believers. Can we create space for our enemies? Can we sit next to someone with whom we don't agree and find common ground? It's my hope that we can. And I think that's an important message here when we're talking about hospitality. So what's the point? Uh, what I'm really trying to do here is to provide us with some framework to help us think through hospitality and how to be good hosts. I've been up here talking for nearly 30 minutes today and I probably could have just read the quote I'm about to read and then we could have uh, just gone to lunch early if I'd have done this at the beginning as opposed to the end. Um, at its core, what is hospitality? Uh, a pastor uh, that I really respect named Henry Newland said it this way, hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. It is not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines. Seems simple, but so hard to carry out on a daily basis. So reflecting back on the story about my mother and my childhood home, you know it's not about the house, right? The house is a metaphor. It's not about what the house looks like. It's not about all this stuff inside. The house represents a space where people can enter and not feel judged. It feels good to be home, 
I feel like my mother taught me that well. What it's always about is the relationships that are formed and fortified inside the space, regardless of where it is or what it looks like. It has to be a place where people are free to be who they are. And again, my mom taught me that lesson. When I partner that with the things that I've learned from my friends about Jesus, it only amplifies the call to treat all people well. And our job as believers is to meet people where they are and work to erase the lines that divide us. Is Jesus at the center? Is Jesus serving as our host? That's what he wants, and I think that's how it works best. Let's pray. Father God, uh, so grateful for your son and the hospitality lessons that he provides for us. And I just love the way that he encourages us to love the people who hate us and the people that we may or may not dislike. God, we're thankful for this message, um, and we love Jesus. God, we pray um, that you help us make us, uh, that you help us make us more like him. Lord, we love you, and we thank you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.